Good morning, Forest View. Let's begin by stating the obvious. I am not Nat. Nat was to be preaching this week, but he realized early on last week that he's got a house to sell and he's got a house to paint. As I was talking to him on Zoom this week, I would see his knuckles covered in paint. So as we uh, think about Nat and Julie, uh, let's be praying for them. They have a house to sell and I think it goes up on the market this week. So we can remember that uh, just to add to our many things to be praying for. We can be praying for them. We are in the second week of this series that we are calling, Now What? Uh, the apostles and other followers of Jesus have borne witness to the miraculous. They have borne witness to the fact that Jesus was dead. There's no denying that. Jesus was dead, but now he's alive, and there's no denying this. Of course, people do deny it. People denied it then that the resurrection was real. People deny it now that the resurrection is real. But to the disciples, it was absolutely real. They saw Jesus. They witnessed Jesus. They were with him. They touched him. They spoke to him. They listened to him. And they ate with him. And in fact, Luke, in the opening of the book of Acts, tells us that Jesus was eating with his disciples on what became his final occasion with them. He was eating with the disciples in Jerusalem, and telling them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. You can imagine Jesus saying, you know, the one promised by my Father, the one that you've heard me speak about, wait for this Holy Spirit. Wait for this Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will take the message of my death and resurrection, and you will take that message across Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what happens in chapter 2 of the book of Acts is, this is that this begins. It's the celebration of Pentecost. And the, um, followers, uh, Jew Jewish people, have come from across the world and have pilgrims have descended upon Jerusalem to celebrate this, um, this festival. It's a harvest festival. Everyone is there. And on the day of Pentecost, the disciples who are there as well are gathered in this one house or in this one room and something amazing happens, something miraculous happens. A pillar of fire descends upon the house and then that single pillar of fire breaks up into all these small little fires and descends upon each of the individuals in the room. And this crazy event is pointing back to something in the Old Testament because that is how God presented himself. That is how God showed up in the Old Testament to Moses at Mount Sinai, a pillar of fire descends over Mount Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments. And then a pillar of fire um, comes, and, and, uh, comes over top of the, of the, um, of the tabernacle as the, as the Jewish people are traveling through the wilderness to be a light to them as they travel through the wilderness. This fire, this descending of fire, this pillar of fire is what we would call a theophany. It is a manifestation of God on earth. And this fire of the Old Testament has come, come upon each of these disciples now in this room as a collection of individuals. To borrow a, a phrase from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, they are now like little mobile temples. They are the new presence of God on earth. They are, as Elizabeth reminded us in her prayer last week, they are the body of Christ. And so as the body of Christ, they immediately spill out into the streets of Jerusalem. And they start speaking about the wonders of God, speaking in the many languages represented there in Jerusalem by the people who have come from, from among the nations. And so the mission that Jesus has given them has begun. And at the peak of this event, Peter gets up and he's addressing 
not just those who are listening, but he's addressing the scoffers, those who are, have accused them of having too much wine too early in the morning. And he explains the scriptures to them and everything that's going on. And he calls the people to repentance and he calls them into right relationship with God. And so people respond and not just a few of them. But Luke tells us 3,000 of them responded, which even if it's just a fraction of the whole number of people in Jerusalem, people say, or scholars would say, there are over 70,000 people in Jerusalem at the time. 3,000 is a big number regardless, regardless. And so as you can see in the book of Acts, in these first two chapters, that a lot has happened in the first days of the early church. And as we read our passage together, we're going to read again from this passage in Acts chapter 2, I think what we're going to see is that Luke is trying to capture the essence of this community, this community of disciples, these early believers. Luke is trying to capture the essence of how they lived together, the spirit in which they lived, and the result of all this, the result of how they lived together, what it meant for the world. In other words, Luke is giving us the, uh, the early church's answer to the question that they were faced with, the question now what? The question that we've titled this series, now what? Now that Jesus has risen and ascended, now what? Now that the Holy Spirit has come upon us, now that, uh, you know, now that all of this has happened, how do we live now? How do we live? Now what? So let's read our passage together. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added to the community those who were being saved. A number of years ago, um, oh, sorry, I think I'm jumping ahead here. Now what? In light of everything, the, the disciples, the, this passage is helping us answer the question, now what? What do we do? How do we carry this on? And I think what Luke is doing here in this passage that we just read is he's given us the facts. There's not a lot of commentary or emotion in what we've read. There's no exclamation marks as you read it. You can almost imagine that if, that if you were writing this now and it was up on using some sort of a digital form, you would have fire emojis. But there's nothing like that. It's just a very matter of fact, this is what happened. It reminds me of when I was a little kid. I went down into my parents' crawl space and I dug out this big green um, duffel bag. It was my grandfather's sort of army bag. And, and I was imagining that I was going to open up all sorts of great treasures. And I did find things. I found his, he was a veteran of World War I. I found his helmet and there were some things of his uniform and a canteen. And then I found this diary and I thought, oh, this is going to be so full of amazing stories of my, father, my grandfather in World War I. And I opened it up. And what did I read? January 3rd. It rained. January 10th. We moved the horses. January 22nd. 
I had cream in my coffee. It was just these scant facts. There was nothing miraculous or wonderful. There was all these great war stories in my grandfather's diary, and I kind of feel like that's what Luke is giving to us. He's just giving us the facts. He's telling us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, something Nat preached about last week. Luke is telling us that, um, and today what we want to do is to want to look at what else uh, Luke is telling us. He's telling us that um, the other ways that this radical group of disciples lived, and specifically, we're going to see that this radical group of disciples shared their wealth, they practiced hospitality, and they prayed together. And so a little uh, bit of understanding of how we're going to do this this morning. Elizabeth and I thought it would be fun to kind of just share this preaching. And so I'm going to touch on the first two of those about the wealth and the hospitality. And then I'm going to invite Elizabeth to come up and she's going to teach, teach uh, for us on the, the portion of prayer after which I'll come up and, and close us off. So let's, let's begin. The first thing we notice after the apostles' teaching is that the people were in fellowship with one another. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you're likely familiar with this Greek word koinonia. Uh, English words that bear resemblance to koinonia are fellowship, which is the uh, translation in the passage we just read, but also the word community, communion, joint participation. These can all be translated, English translations of the word koinonia. But most importantly, I think what we find in the New Testament, and particularly in this passage, that related to the word koinonia is always this proclamation of the kingdom of God. A number of years ago, Elizabeth bought me a biography of a man named Clarence Jordan. At the time, I didn't know who Clarence Jordan was. Um, I'd never heard of him, but his story is quite remarkable. Clarence Jordan was this interesting combination of a farmer and a New Testament scholar. And he founded this communal farm in Georgia in 1940 that was committed to racial equality. Black and white farm workers were treated equally and paid the same wage for their work. Everyone at mealtime would come and sit together regardless of the color of your skin. And they did this sitting together at one table. And what did Clarence Jordan, this New Testament scholar, name his farm? Koinonia. Koinonia Farm. And what was the mission of the farm? Clarence Jordan said that the mission of this farm, this farm called Koinonia, was to be a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. A demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Living in fellowship with one another, expressing Koinonia has a mission to be a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. It seems that Clarence Jordan understood that when Christians live in fellowship with one another and together they have the potential to give the world a glimpse of the coming kingdom. They have the potential to be a sign, symbol, and foretaste of what's coming and to invite others into it. So you get the picture. Koinonia, however it's translated. Fellowship, community, communion, joint participation. It points to something just and something deeply relational. And it points to the kind of community that God imagines for us. The early believers were living in Koinonia with one another. And how did it look? Well, specifically, we are told that there was a sharing of wealth and possessions to ensure that no one was left in need. And there was an extending of their tables and opening of their doors in a gesture of hospitality. 
So let's work through these. Uh, when it comes to sharing their wealth, as Luke describes it, there were two forms of this. Uh, the first we see is that the early Christians held their possessions in common. And while it could make for a fun discussion, we can at least agree that, you know, it could make for a fun discussion about whether this was socialism or communism. I think that we could at least agree that this growing church in Jerusalem understood themselves as this large extended family. Because in families, this is what we do. We share our possessions and we share our space with one another. Now, of course, some of you are watching this uh, at home. Most of you are watching this at home, in fact. And some of you might be drinking coffee from your favorite mug. This is your mug. Or some of you might be sitting in the chair that is your chair. But for the most part, as families, our living rooms, our family rooms, our kitchens, our back decks, and as our children get older, our cars, these spaces and these places and these possessions are things that are shared. And for those of you that are living at home, I just know that, uh, that these spaces that you own and possess, you are looking forward to the day when you can welcome people back into them to share them with others. And for the early church, this sharing of wealth went beyond just sharing their possessions. For some, it even included the liquidation of assets, selling their land and their houses from time to time in order to meet the needs of the community. Now, this radical form of discipleship didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, in a very real way, the practice of the early church sharing their wealth was an extension of the way of life of the disciples uh, and Jesus during his ministry. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8 that, uh, of how the disciples and Jesus uh, traveling, traveling together had a group of women traveling with them who supported the disciples out of their own purses. And radical sharing and caring for the poor seems to be something that Luke, of all the gospel writers, has a particular interest in. Luke, of all, of all the gospel writers, is the one who tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a man who digs into his own purse to care for the needs of an enemy. Luke, of all the gospel writers, is the one who tells the parable of the great banquet. The parable of the great banquet is this man, this wealthy man, who plans this wonderful, lavish dinner, and he invites all his distinguished friends, and none of them come. One after another, they cancel, all with their own excuses. And rather than postponing the event, packing everything up, the host says to his servant, go out and invite the poor and the disabled, those who are most marginalized in that time, invite them to the table, bring them around. And so the servant does. And when he does, there's still room at the table. So the host says to the servant, go out into the alleyways, into the back lanes and all the streets, fill the room, fill the room with those who will appreciate and those who need to be here. And it's as if in telling this parable, this story, Jesus is doing in story form what Clarence Jordan and the early church were doing in real life. They were giving us a glimpse of the kingdom of God. They were giving us a glimpse of a table fellowship that includes those who are forgotten, those who are marginalized, and those who are in need of God's mercy. And this radical sharing of wealth that the early church was practicing not only looks backwards to the disciples and how they lived and the teachings of Jesus, but it points forward to the Apostle Paul and his instructions for the church. In the, in the book of Romans, um, 
Romans is, is this uh, large, very large volume written to the Church of Rome. The, the first 11 chapters are very heavy and dense with theology. And chapter 12 becomes this bit of a hinge chapter that, um, that moves us into practically living. How do we live as the people of God? Paul is writing this to the church in Rome. And in chapter 12, verse 13, he says to the people, share with God's people who are in need. Paul understood and was calling people, of all the things that we do, of all the ways that we live, one of the things that we need to remember to do is to share with those who are in need. So forced view, how can we be a community who share our possessions as a witness to the, to the, uh, to the goodness of God? Or maybe I should ask, can we, how can we as a community share our possessions as a witness to the goodness of God? Now, it's a strange time to be thinking of this. It's hard to share things with each other when we can't even see one another. Per perhaps these hard times will pass. Well, these hard times will pass. Maybe I should say that with greater confidence. And perhaps we can be thinking ahead. Perhaps now our possessions are found in our skills and our expertise or just faithfully giving of our time. Down at Rolling Horse, Rob, our new shop manager, has been sharing his skills and expertise as a bike manager to train two young men from Brampton who are a part of who, who we came to know through Mark Evans' ministry with Youth Unlimited, training them and equipping them to take bike mechanic skills and open up a community bike shop in the church parking lot, in a church parking lot in Brampton. Down at Next Door, Week after week throughout the pandemic, teams, small teams of people have been coming down and using their skill and their joy in cooking and preparing fresh soups and grain-based salads, healthy, nutritious meals that are packaged and distributed to those in greatest need across Halton. Another woman down at next door, a woman named Tina who rents our kitchen to run a small uh, micro-business preparing healthy meals donates portions of her meals every week to people in need, people that we identify for her. She tithes out of her, out of her own meal production, out of her own business to those in need. And every week, a small group of people from Forest View, three of us in fact, three, not us, I'm not one of them, three people in fact, meet down at a geared income neighborhood and distribute food. Doesn't take a lot of skill and expertise for, for, for what they're doing, but it takes a lot of commitment to faithfully be there week after week through the hot, searing days of summer, through the cold, snowy days of winter, to be faithfully there serving the community. So can you, can we as a church, begin to think now about the skills and expertise we might be able to share now or in the future when things begin to open up? Or is there a place that just needs our faithful service? And if you're wondering these questions and you're not sure of the answers, I would love to speak to you. I would love to brainstorm with you and to help you imagine the answer to those questions. So please just ask me. In our giving liturgy each week, which we just prayed, which Sarah led us in, we pray the line, Lord, you have been abundantly generous to us. And so in turn, we desire to be generous with each other and those around us till there is no needy person among us. Having prayed this each week, perhaps we just need a reminder for us through of how our money that we're collecting is being used to make this prayer a reality. Every month, 
someone from Forest View, maybe one or two people, go shopping and put together breakfast bags, breakfast meals for the people down at Kerr Street Mission, Kerr Street Mission in Oakville. We used to do this monthly, actually, with a lot of people cooking a meal and serving it at Kerr Street. We can't do that anymore, but the meal is still real. And so your tithe goes towards this. The expenses of the soups that we prepare, the wages that we pay, the rent that we pay, turning on the light and the heat and the hydro at next door is because of your generosity. And our global mission partners in Malawi, caring for children in an orphanage, educating children, among many other things that they're doing. Thailand, growing and teaching people to grow food and distributing food, among many other things that they're doing. And Ecuador, I won't even talk about Ecuador because that would be a spoiler alert. Next week, we're going to learn more about Ecuador from Yomi. So you can look forward to that. But this forest view is how we can and how we do share our wealth. As an expression of koinonia, the early church not only shared their wealth with one another, they extended their tables in hospitality. Acts 2 verse 42 says that the followers of Jesus devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And verse 46 says further that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The question scholars debate over this passage is whether Luke is talking about just a meal that they ate together or is he talking about a sacramental meal? Is he talking about communion? Well, what's most likely the case is that uh, Luke is recalling the, um, the practice of devout Jewish families who after temple worship would come together and sit down for a meal and their meal together would be a symbol of their social and spiritual solidarity. So Luke has this in mind and he's, remember, and he's writing about this and understanding that the meal, which always commenced with the patriarch at the head of the table, literally breaking the bread, understanding this, the early Christians, being Jewish, would most likely continue this practice. So they would gather at the temple and then they would come back after prayer. They would come back after prayers and they would have a meal together. And as the head person at the head of the table broke that bread, the Christians were remembering Jesus breaking bread at the Passover. Jesus breaking bread, the resurrected Jesus breaking bread with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they were remembering Jesus. We can imagine that the meal together that they were sharing, their literal meal, was also a time of remembrance. Now, when breaking bread together, the disciples are likely not only remembering Jesus, they are likely remembering that Jesus had a thing for food. He loved a good meal. He loved being at a banquet or having time with food together. Matthew is probably remembering that when Jesus called him from the tax collector's booth, he's remembering the great banquet and feast that he put on for Jesus. All of the disciples are probably remembering the time that Jesus fed the thousands or the multiple times that Jesus fed the thousands and they're probably saying to each other, we could use that now with these thousands of new converts, these thousands of people who have been added to our community. Peter is probably remembering the meal that Jesus prepared for him on the beach after the resurrection. Peter, in shame, having deserted Jesus at his time of greatest need, and there's Jesus preparing a meal of fish and bread for him, restoring him to become the man that he is and the man that he is now. Peter is probably recalling this. 
For Jesus, a meal was an important place of ministry. And while we would never agree with the Pharisees that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard, we'd have to admit that the Pharisees must have come up with this for some reason. They, he must have come, Jesus must have come across his reputation somehow. And speaking about Jesus in Luke's gospel, theologian Robert Karras says that Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. So forced view, when we say that we want to be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him, what are we really saying? We're saying that we want to be people who gather together for a meal. We're agreeing that we need to spend time around the table, particularly with those who are apart from God, with those who feel hurt or judged by God. We need to be at the table with others, a redeeming presence with words of love and hope. Rosaria Butterfield is the author of a book titled The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in it, she talks about hospitality as being both radical and ordinary. Hospitality is radical because in the Christian context, it understands that our houses and our possessions are not ours at all, but gifts that we use to further God's kingdom. That's radical. Hospitality is also ordinary because there's nothing um, special about it. We express hospitality in very ordinary ways. Not elaborate, just an invitation to come and live life together. Friends, we know it might be a while before we can open up our homes to extend hospitality to one another. It's hard to imagine how we might do this when we can't even see one another. Perhaps, but perhaps... Now, more than ever, we need to be creative. We need to find ways to be a neighbor. And perhaps now more than ever is a time when we can simply pray, a time when we can simply pray for those around us. So I'm going to invite Elizabeth to come up and speak to us about prayer. Thank you, Paul. Okay, so this is the third part um, of this passage from Acts about the people praying together. And we know that individual prayer is important, but what's the big deal about praying together, about corporate prayer? And I want to say this morning, um, this is going to be my five minutes on why I think corporate prayer is important. Um, and I, I think what praying together does, it, it does three things. First of all, it puts us in right relationship with God. And second, it puts us in right relationship with each other. And thirdly, I think it puts us in right relationship with the world. So the first part, how does praying together put us in right relationship with God? And I think prayer, this is our conversation with God. This is our mutual dialogue with God. This is how we get to know God. Um, it's, it's through that conversation of prayer. And when we pray together, we as a group are getting to know God, but we are also acknowledging God as a superior being. Like he's our creator, he's our rock in times of trouble. 
but he is superior to the lesser gods that we often worship during the week and that God is worthy of our time and energy. Um, and what that does is by acknowledging God as superior to the other gods that we may be tempted to worship, is that is going to form us as a community. It's going to affect our vision. It's going to affect what we care about, what we plan to do, who we become, all of that. And what we remember is that God listens and speaks to us through, through prayer with a disposition of love so that our prayer is always a response to God's communication with us. This Orthodox priest um, in Egypt, Matthew the Poor, he lives in the monastery of St. Macarius the Great in Egypt, and he says, prayer is heart-to-heart talk, forever active on God's part, forever slow on ours. And David Benner, the spiritual uh, director, says this is the most remarkable thing about the Christian God is that he seeks us, not we him. So when we pray together, we are responding to a God who looks upon us out of a disposition of love. So secondly, corporate prayer, when we pray together, this puts us in right relationship with each other. And we remember that we are God's beloved children. If you, if you think about the Lord's Prayer, it is our Father. And if God is our Father, then that makes us siblings. We are brothers and sisters. And as children, there is going to be a sense of interdependence and mutuality. This, this metaphor of the body of Christ is going to shape the way that we live. And it's actually going to mandate a certain way of life. So this idea that we are brothers and sisters, this is not just a truth that we acknowledge, but this is actually a truth that we have to live. And I think the key to living as brothers and sisters of Christ, this is what um, Henry Nowen says in Clowning of Rome, he talks about this space um, that's required for healthy human relationships. And he calls this free and empty space um, between us that can only by, be filled by God. So instead of fearfully, expectantly clinging to those around us, we realize that our need for affirmation, our sense of belonging, purpose is met by God first instead of each other. And when we, when we give each other that kind of holy vacancy that's for God alone, it's only then that we can interact as brothers and sisters and extend that sort of hospitality with each other once our deepest needs have already been met by God. The thing is, is God values community among his children. So all those one another commands that come further along in the New Testament, that mandates our way of life because our identity, it's not our race, our sex, or social class, but our identity is the body of Christ. So how do we live that out as brothers and sisters? And so lastly, when we pray, it puts us in right relationship with the world. 
So often when we pray individually, we're praying for private personal concerns, and that is a good thing. But when we pray together as, as, as a corporate body, um, we are to mirror God's love for the world. So we think about John 3.16, for God so loved the world, then that also has to be our stance towards the world. So corporate prayer doesn't take us out of the world, but instead it like firmly places us right in the middle of it. As we've seen from our headlines in the news, it's like there is no doubt that this world is broken and troubled. And what this world needs is transformed people, transformed by the Spirit of God. It needs resistance to the evil that is pervasive and abundant. And we need to pray the kingdom of God, which is slowly but surely coming, just as the resurrection kind of forecasts. So corporate prayer changes us. It transforms us into a different kind of people. Remember that book we read a couple summers ago about Michael Frost? It it makes us into a weird people, a peculiar people. And strange people are going to act in strange and unusual ways. And that that is what corporate prayer does. It it, it puts us on this path of acting in strange and um, unusual ways. But prayer, the prayers of the church are also this powerful form of resistance to the evil around us. Uh, Karl Barth described a prayer as the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So this isn't just a social practice or kind of a quaint religious tradition, but corporate prayer is actually a political act. And we pray and we prepare to disrupt frustrate and ultimately overcome the forces of evil in the world. It's actually a profoundly political act when we pray because we are praying to disrupt the forces of evil and to undermine the systems of violence in the world. And then the prayers of the church, they move us towards joining with God in the redemptive work that God is doing. It draws us into the into the center of the triune God. It, it, it aligns our purpose with the purpose of God, which is we want the full redemption of this earth that, that, the, that the resurrection points towards and it forecasts. That is what we are working alongside God with. So those are the three things. Corporate prayer, praying together, puts us in right relationship with God, It puts us in right relationship with each other as siblings, as the body of Christ. And thirdly, it puts us in right relationship with the world. Now to Paul. Thank you, Elizabeth. And if that is not an invitation to be praying together, what is? Powerful. Thank you. Force you can, the way that we live as a community, mostly scattered these days across Hamilton and Halton, be a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. A community who shares our possessions with the poor and extends hospitality to one another and to our neighbors. And a community who opens up our wallets and who prays together in a corporate fashion, understanding prayer as resistance, understanding that prayer actually matters and means something for the sake of our world. What are the threats that keep us from this or that might keep us from more of this? Koinonia Farm endured bullets 
and bombs and boycotts because of their work towards racial equality. And their response, nonviolence, um, nonviolence, uh, prayer, <laughs> how could I forget that one? Prayer and a renewed commitment. Rosaria Butterfield, who I mentioned earlier, tells a story in her book about being a neighbor to a man who moved across the street from her, a man who was a recluse and impossible to get to know, and the crack in the armor came when his dog became lost, and her children went out and found the dog. That was the crack in the armor. Well, two years after living there, she woke up early one morning to discover a, a vice squad, police tape, and police cars surrounding his house. It turns out this guy had a meth lab in his basement. Him and his girlfriend were running a meth lab. People came to her, to her front lawn and into her house that morning, Rosaria's house, because she was the one closest to the action. But some also came to express sort of empathy, saying, as a neighbor, I know you were friends with him. You know, I'm sorry. But others came with accusations like, how could you not have known this? You must be complicit. You were keeping this a secret. You were his friend. You were a part of this in some way. And the, uh, and the actions of being a neighbor sometimes are dangerous, she reminds us through that story. So what are we scared of? What keeps us from being a koinonia people who practice radical, ordinary hospitality and generosity? What keeps us from being a people who pray for our neighbors? What keeps us from loving those who are recluse and difficult to reach? Is it the threat to our time or comfort? Are we concerned that people will just think us a little bit strange or that we have an agenda? Or are we scared of our own awkwardness? As a resurrection people who face the question, now what? Let's ask the risen Christ to build us up, to give us courage and creative ideas, to be hospitable, generous, and prayerful people in the midst of the worst of this pandemic. And let's ask the risen Christ to fill us with joy. Luke concludes his summary of the early church saying that the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. So forced view. Let's ask the risen Christ to grow his kingdom through us as we live together in Koinonia. And maybe we need to begin by asking God to help us to believe that such a thing is even possible. And lastly, let's begin by noticing and asking the risen Christ to show us where to begin. Because we need his help. We need the help of God. Where in our parish can we direct the love of Christ that dwells within us? The parish that is the church and the parish that is your own neighborhood or workplace. Who's the neighbor, co-worker, small group member that the Spirit is nudging you, that the Spirit is nudging us to reach out to in love and kindness, in generosity, hospitality, and with prayer? We're going to move now to communion where Melody is going to remind us of Jesus' radical love for us, a love that now dwells in us as the body of Christ sent out into the world to be a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Amen. <laughs>